Hello, I'm Kate Jabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, a skirmish in the Black Sea. What really happened off the coast of Crimea? We should recognise this is a dangerous game. There's huge scope for an accident to occur, misinterpretation leading to an actual kinetic engagement. Bullying, harassment, a glass ceiling, the problems facing many women in the forces. We don't have the evidence or the understanding of women's needs to enable those, those commitments made by government to be enacted. And the truth is out there, and we may be about to learn more about UFOs. This is now no longer uh, science fiction or conspiracy theory. This is firmly now being framed as a defence and national security issue. So what really happened in the Black Sea this week? Russia claims it fired warning shots towards HMS Defender, which it said had crossed into its territorial waters. Not true, said the MOD, who insisted the Type 45 destroyer was passing through Ukrainian waters close to Crimea. The Defence Secretary Ben Wallace told MPs on the Defence Select Committee it's not the first time Moscow's made exaggerated claims. The Russians recently made a claim about, I think, HMS Dragon and her trans... Uh, her, her use of the route a few months ago, claiming that she'd been chased out, which was uh, factually untrue as well. So, um, I mean, these are the things that come and go uh, with Russia. Disinformation, misinformation is something that we have seen regularly. Uh, we're not surprised by it. We plan for it. Uh, and we take all steps to make sure that we are not uh, escalatory or indeed provocative. Uh, however, we will not shy away from upholding international law and our rights on the sea. But BBC defence correspondent Jonathan Beale was on board Defender and says there was definitely some kind of encounter. This was a deliberate move by the Royal Navy warship HMS Defender on its way to Georgia. It said it was going through a recognised international shipping lane, but while it was carrying out this kind of... And there is... That is another Russian aircraft buzzing the warship here in the Black Sea. There have been, at times, more than 20 aircraft above the warship, and there have been warnings from uh, Russian Coast Guard vessels, and indeed we have heard shots fired. We believe they were out of range. Tobias Elwood chairs the Commons Defence Committee. These military brushes, maritime or indeed air, were regular occurrences during the Cold War, and if there's a difference today, is how quickly a Russian disinformation campaign kicked in. So yes, this was about territorial claims, but also about messaging. Is Putin, through his own state media, painting the West as aggressors, and the West responding, and indeed talking about, as we are today, paying attention to Putin. We should recognise this is a dangerous game. S, you know, Su-24 Russian jets buzzing NATO ships. There's huge scope for an accident to occur, misinterpretation, leading to an actual kinetic engagement. And, uh, you know, it could be a bit of time before somebody grabs that red phone and calms things down. Well, let's explore this now with Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, there seems to be a consensus that Britain wanted to make a point to the Russians, and it seems to have got the point. Yes, and both sides knew that this was going to happen. Remember, 
the Russians set this up in a way because they tried to play a game with the um, auto identification systems that all ships have and anybody can track where ships are through the AIS. And they tried to set up a spoof auto identification system last week to pretend that the HMS Defender and the Dutch frigate, the Evanson, had left Odessa when they were still in port. And they pretended by setting up a spoof trail that they'd sailed right up to within two miles of Sevastopol, all completely untrue. They were still in Odessa. So now that the rest of the world can see what they did, essentially, you know, the Russians set up an arrangement whereby they could claim that these ships were inside Russian territorial waters. We don't recognize those waters because we don't recognize Crimea as part of Russia. And those ships were taking a route which was part of the usual traffic separation system. It was a shipping route, which does take it inside the 12 mile limit of Crimea. So, you know, they set something up. We knew they'd set it up and we decided to do it anyway because we're making a point to each other in effect. And do you think it has any kind of impact? Well, it has a diplomatic impact. These issues, everyone says how dangerous it is. It's not really that dangerous, to be honest. Things can go wrong, of course. But I mean, you know, aircraft fly above ships all the time. But diplomatically, it raises the stakes. So the Russians have, have, have picked out the British as an example that they would like to make, that these waters they claim are Russian territorial waters. And we are making the point to them, diplomatically, that we don't take that. And we're prepared to send our ships through those waters and, you know, do what you like about it is really what we're saying. So diplomatically, we're on a more risky game now, both us and the Russians. But in military terms, no, this sort of thing happens all the time, to be honest. And how much of this could be linked to the deal Britain agreed with Ukraine this week to jointly build warships and naval bases? Uh, quite a lot, yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that the Russians wanted to push back on. That's part of the reason why I think they wanted to pick out the British rather than the Dutch or the Americans as part of these task groups to make a point about. This is Global Britain. This is the Integrated Review saying that, you know, we will do deals with our new partners and if Ukraine is a good partner we'll do deals with her and we will get out and about and as you know as the Navy have said they said well you know get into their backyard don't let them bend us out of shape every time they come through the channel let's actually do something that gives them something to think about so it is this much more assertive policy economically with Ukraine diplomatically and in military terms getting the Navy out and about in relatively dangerous waters. Indeed we're sailing close to Crimea sending the carrier strike group towards the south China Sea. What's the potential for more of these kind of incidents? Uh, quite high, I think. I mean, as the carrier battle group gets towards the South China Sea, the Chinese will certainly react in similar sorts of ways. And the danger is, of course, that we might find ourselves distracted by, uh, you know, some sort of similar scenario with China somewhere east of Singapore. And that the Russians may may use that distraction to find some other little manoeuvre to try to humiliate us or get one over on us. Uh, you know, when you've only got one carrier battle group to play with and you send it around the world, annoying people in some cases, then it will leave in its wake a trail of ideas about revenge. And so I think we've got to realise that, that, you know, this isn't just a flag waving exercise. This is Britain trying to make a point in world politics. And we've got to have the diplomatic and economic and political strength and courage to back up those points if we're going to make them. Michael Clark, stay with us. It's more than a decade since reports for the Army and the Ministry of Defence highlighted some of the huge problems facing women serving in the armed forces. Two years ago, another report talked about unacceptable levels of sexual harassment and discrimination. Many former service women say they've been targeted. Patricia Price is a veteran of the Royal Engineers. Although the reason for leaving and what will be in my records is, was pregnancy, 
what made it easy, easier, was the sexual harassment part of it. I got to the stage where I didn't know what to do. There was no guidance on if you suffer this, this, this is where you go, because, you know, sexual harassment didn't happen as far as they were concerned at that point. Bear in mind, this is some years ago. I felt like it, I was being forced to make a choice. If I complained about it, it was going to cost me, you know, there would be ramifications, there would be consequences. It would mean I was going nowhere. And the few people that I said, what am I going to do? They said, keep your mouth shut. We've all been through it. So yes, I've been through it. And I know many, many, you know, women who have served that are, I'm still close friends with. I don't know anyone that, I don't know any of them that haven't. Well, now, once again, new research is highlighting the effects a male-dominated military culture has on women who serve. The issues are highlighted in a new report called We Also Served, which makes dozens of recommendations. It was written by Dr Lauren Godier mcbard a senior research fellow at the Veterans and Families Institute for Military Social Research at Anglia Ruskin University. It's important to acknowledge that most women do have a successful and happy career in the armed forces, but our research has identified a number of challenges and issues that women face during their military service that have the potential to impact on their well-being not only during their military service but also into their civilian lives. These now need to be acknowledged following a number of, of previous reports that have raised these issues around the male-dominated military environment but we now need to go a little bit further and look at actually how this is impacting on women and what can be done to address this. Because you highlight the lack of research into the ways in which service life and the military culture affect women both during service and after leaving. Yes that's right. We have a small amount of evidence that suggests that women are having having adverse experiences around sexism, gender-related discrimination during service, particularly around perceptions of the female gender as being associated with weakness and women having to prove themselves. But what we don't have uh, is evidence of how this is impacting them in terms of their well-being during service, but also how this might kind of spill over into their well-being after service as well. And the report again highlights what's described as a masculine military culture, which repeatedly manifests itself as sexual harassment, even assault. This is something military leaders have been aware of, and they've spoken out against for a long time. There seems to be a will to tackle it, but not a way. There have been a number of reports spanning back over 15 years now that have highlighted these issues over and over again uh, and the fact that women are more likely than men to experience sexual harassment and sexual violence in the military. Action plans have been put in place but what we're seeing is that each time this is being looked at the same issues are being raised. It's really time to take notice of this now and make some changes. Of course one way of countering issues around harassment might be uh, if there were more women in leadership positions but the report highlights how few there are. Yes that's right. There is a significant underrepresentation of women in leadership positions. Perhaps if there were more female role models in those senior positions, that that cultural shift might happen a little bit more quickly. And in the same way that the military culture is male dominated, you say the veteran support system is also heavily skewed towards men. That's just the kind of result of the fact that women have and are a significant minority in the veteran population. So services that have been built around veterans have um, just by by nature of, um, of the male dominated uh, veteran and military population have been built around men's 
women's needs. Uh, and that's not to say that women's needs have been sidelined. It's just that, that you know, the typical veteran that, that you would be seeing in those services would be uh, a male veteran. So women aren't necessarily having their needs met within these services. And again, this is an area that really needs to be looked into further. What we are suggesting is that these veteran organisations really need to look at the offer that they are providing in terms of support to women and whether this is a adequately targeted towards women. So are they aware of those services? And B, are they meeting women's needs? And of the recommendations that your report makes, which would you say are the most urgent? Our top priority in terms of research is, is as you mentioned, looking at sexual harassment and sexual violence in service and the impact that this is having on women, both during and after service. Uh, in terms of support for women after service, making sure that services for veterans are adequately targeted and tailored towards women is something that needs to be urgently looked at. If you were to take a step back, um, why do you think it's important to resolve the issues that you've raised? As the name of our report suggests, women are also serving this country. We have, you know, a veteran strategy that is looking to support veterans to have the best possible life that they can. But at the moment, we don't have the evidence or the understanding uh, of women's needs to enable those those commitments made by government to be enacted to support women to have a positive experience in service and also in their civilian life. Dr Lauren Gaudier-McBard, who wrote the report. Well, let's turn to Professor Michael Clark. And Michael, military leaders have repeatedly said they're determined to get to grips with these problems, but the problems remain. Yes, they do. And I think uh, Dr Gaudier-McBard's done a really good job with this report because, in a way, it's a report of reports. What it is, it, it looks at what evidence we do have and it shows that, you know, there have been a number of reports on sexual harassment, f- some reports on medical conditions, not many reports on PTSD. You know, when you look at the, the experience of women in the armed forces, the evidence that we have is very patchy. And I think what uh, Dr Gaudier-McBard has done is point to where the gaps in our understanding are. And I thought there, was, there were lots of fascinating elements of this. I mean, one of the things that that, uh, she revealed is that, you know, women suffer more from musculoskeletal issues having served in the military, you know, injuries that they carry with them for the rest of their lives. They carry more of those than men do. They have similar elements of hazardous drinking, which we know is a perennial military problem. But one of the very interesting things that she finished her interview on was saying that women find it difficult to tap into the veteran status. They don't like the idea of veteran, being a veteran. It's very difficult for them because the veterans are all set up in an even more masculine way than the armed forces themselves are set up and that really needs to be looked at so I thought I think it's a really good report and it does as it were highlight how long-standing all of these issues really are because this is all about cultural change you know the the the, the, the military take it as organizational change we've got to change our organization to allow women to do this that and the other to get to the top and so on but it's cultural change and that's that takes longer and you've got to really go at it you can't just have a report and a new approach and then tick that box and leave it for 10 years you have to keep with it and i'm not sure that the armed services really have kept with it in the way that they claim they have and we've talked before about the different kinds of skills the military will need going forward so tackling this is surely even more urgent very much so because what we are talking about now cultural change is that we need a different type of armed forces male and female for the future you still need that ability 
ability to close with the enemy, to be prepared to kill and be killed. You still need that. But more and more, you need a different skill set. You need uh, you need civilian skills that can be integrated into the military environment. And that means that you know the military has got to become much, much more competitive with the civilian sector in the culture that it represents, the professionalism, the satisfaction, the rewards. Uh, it knows that, but it finds it very difficult to do. This is Zitrap. It's 74 years since the Roswell incident, the event that kick-started a fascination with unidentified flying objects. For decades, it was dismissed as an obsession of cranks and conspiracy theorists. But in the next few days, US officials are to submit a report that could, perhaps, shed more light on whether UFOs are real. As Paul Osborne reports, it's after US military jets filmed objects performing seemingly inexplicable airborne feats. Oh my gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Is this an encounter between U.S. military pilots and an alien intelligence? Well, if there's a like thing, it's rotating. Lieutenant Commander Alex Dietrich was with three other pilots on a routine training flight when they saw an object off the coast of Southern California. It was uh, traveling uh, very fast and uh, very erratically, and we couldn't anticipate which way it was going to turn or uh, how couldn't understand how it was maneuvering the way that it was or the propulsion system. It's the kind of thing that would have been dismissed in the past but that changed in 2017 when officials released footage filmed from military jets. Suddenly UFOs were not the sole preserve of cranks and conspiracy theorists. I tell you gentlemen science has agreed that unless something is done and done quickly man as the dominant species of life on earth will be extinct within a year. The fascination dates back to 1947 and the Roswell incident, a crash in New Mexico, officially of a weather balloon, though that was later dismissed as a cover story. Still, says journalist Leslie Kane, anyone asking questions was labelled an oddball. There was actual a sort of a policy to use ridicule to kind of damp the whole thing down that goes back to the 50s and it became just part of the culture. And since then... We were just kind of left with this this attitude of ridicule in the culture. We weren't hearing anything about it from our government. But once the fighter jet footage emerged, Congress demanded a proper explanation. They wanted answers to the same questions that have, on the quiet at least, been asked at the very top. Barack Obama revealed at least part of what he'd been told in an interview with America's CBS. There's footage and records of objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. We can't explain how they moved, their trajectory. They did not have an easily explainable pattern. This report won't confirm the existence of alien spacecraft. Neither, though, will it rule it out. And that, says UFO researcher Chris Jones, is a big deal. Finally, this is being taken seriously. The UFO community has been uh, seeking a disclosure for... 50 plus years or more and I think uh, this is a good step forward for the UFO community for the government to acknowledge the existence of the phenomenon and let people know that there's something going on out there on a regular basis. So something is going on but if it's not aliens what is it? Could someone, China, Russia, have made great strides in hypersonic travel or weapons? Whatever it is 
Former U.S. Defense Department official Chris Mellon says it's vital to learn more. This is a mammoth intelligence failure. We haven't suffered the consequences we did in Pearl Harbor and 9-11, but the, the problems are precisely the same. You had a radar operator seeing Japanese bombers and fighters approaching. He didn't report it to anybody. The information didn't get up the chain. 9-11, we had CIA and FBI not talking and not sharing information. In this case, it's worse. We've got more like 10 agencies not talking and sharing information. So the truth may well be out there, but for the moment, it seems those unidentified objects may remain distinctly unidentified. Paul Osborne with that report. Well, Nick Pope investigated UFOs for the British government. He told me this is a big moment for all those who've taken an interest over the past few decades. This is hugely significant. This takes the subject firmly out of the fringe and into the mainstream. And the fact that we've now got it uh, being looked at by the United States Congress, by the intelligence committees, the armed services committees in both the Senate and the House is, is an absolute breakthrough. Leaks suggest the report won't rule out alien encounters, but realistically, are we more likely to be looking at some kind of mysterious earthbound technology? Well, I think it's all to be determined. This report, by all accounts, tries to cover all the bases and, uh, yes, says no definitive evidence of extraterrestrials, but neither have they ruled it out. I think the devil's in the detail. Does not ruling something out, is that simply the old, well, you can't prove a negative? Or does it reflect the fact, as I have actually been told, that there is a faction in the US government that thinks that this might just be something from further afield. Uh, so we'll, we'll see on that. But of course, yes, Russia, China, uh, those theories that it's some sort of secret prototype aircraft, missile or drone are still in play. Interestingly, the one thing that does seem to have been eliminated is the possibility that this is United States black project technology. It was always a theory that maybe one part of the military was blind testing something against the other. That's about the only thing that they do seem to have said doesn't really account for, for any of, of the cases that they've really had under the microscope. And do you think we'll see more investment in this field as a result of this report? I think we will, because I think there's a realisation that whatever we are dealing with here, this is now no longer uh, science fiction or conspiracy theory or intriguing little paranormal mystery. This is firmly now being framed as a defence and national security issue. And if there are these sightings, as there continue to be, that involve the military, uh, pilots, radar operators, the satellite imagery too, by the way, um, th then it's time to determine what these things are. And if that means more uh, of a structured research and investigation program, then that's what we, we need and should get. And even Barack Obama recently talked about the impact confirmation of alien life would have. It does seem that people are finally taking this seriously. I think they are. And I think there's a realisation. I mean, every time you look at uh, the news, there's a new story about space exploration and discovery. And I think people are, are beginning to realize it's not such a crazy idea to think there might be life out there. And if it's intelligent, it will probably be driven by the same um, desire to find what's out there as we are. Of course, uh, Nick, there is a classified annex to this report, which isn't being made public. Um, presumably, that's where all the juicy information is. Yes, I, I think so. I don't think it will be a 180 degree flip. 
blip from what's in the main unclassified report. So it's not it's not going to say, P.S., yeah, it really is aliens. But I, I think it will get into some of the more technical data that the U.S. government holds on this. I mean, there's a lot of measurement and signature intelligence data that they will have from these various forward-looking infrared uh, films that they have from the Navy jets, from from the satellite imagery, from other other sources. So I think it it will be highly technical. But yeah, I'd I'd love to see it, and it will be interesting to see if if it leaks. And from your experience, the time you've spent researching this subject, have you been able to come to a conclusion, a theory of your own? No, actually, I haven't. I'm uh, still undecided on this. If I had the data that the US government probably has, maybe I'd be a little bit more definitive, but I, I stay open-minded. I'd love it to be extraterrestrial. I really would, because of all the theories. I'm sure that's the most fascinating and, and the most fun frankly but uh, we're not we're not there quite yet more research and investigation needed and other nations need to get into the game on this the ministry of defense i think needs to reopen its program on this and get alongside the US. I mean, this is what alliances are for. That was Nick Pope speaking to me earlier, Professor Michael Clark. I love the way he describes the prospects of aliens being fun, but, but we'll leave that with his interpretation. Uh, space is increasingly a focus for the military, though. Do you think the MOD is going to revive its UFO investigation branch? I don't know if it'll inv- revive the actual branch, but I think it will take a bigger interest in what the Americans are coming up with, because space is now much more integral to all of our functioning, civilian and military, and it matters to us to be able to identify those things which we can't identify and you know anyone who's looked at this knows that ufos exist in the sense that there are lots of unidentified phenomena out there that seem to fly so there is an answer to all these questions the answer is not very unlikely to be aliens but there is an answer and the need to find those answers as we all move into space more will become more urgent and do you think that the the actual explanation will be rather mundane in the end well i'm afraid so most of the people who are convinced that the americans never landed on the moon in 1969 are the same people who are equally convinced that aliens landed at Roswell in 1947. I mean, there's big conspiracy theories out there. Remember, the man-made object that is furthest away from the Earth is 18 billion miles away. The Voyager 1 spacecraft launched in 1977. It left the solar system in 2012. It's going out into deep space now. And if it is intercepted by aliens, it carries a message from mankind to the aliens who intercept it. And that message is in English. That tells you something. (laughs) Well, finally today, the Women's Royal Naval Service was formed in 1917. Last year should have seen some events to mark the centenary of the Wrens Association, but the pandemic put pay to that. So a year late, that anniversary was marked with a royal visitor, as Rosie Layden reports from the National Memorial Arboretum in Staffordshire. The event, delayed a year because of Covid, brought together many old comrades with fond memories of the service. Rita Sayers was in the Wrens for four years but had to leave when she got married. I joined the Wrens in 1961 and I became a stores person but um, we were what we classed as the nuts and bolts section. In other words it was a giant hardware store and we reckon we had everything in there from A right the way through to Z. Like Well, you start with an anchor and you get down to zinc at the other end. <laughs> March past Buckingham Palace, and very seldom has even that august theatre seen a smarter parade. The Wrens were formed in 1917, with women serving as cooks, clerks, wireless operators, radar plotters, and in many other key roles. 
The service was disbanded in 1919, but stood up again in 1939 for the Second World War. I always joke that it's like a finishing school. It was like a finishing school for young ladies in them days, because it was only four weeks. But they taught us how to um, parade, look after our uniform, um, uh, different drills, all about the Royal Navy, the different things that you would uh, could say, routines, all that type of thing. Barbara McGregor joined the service in 1977 and served in the Wrens and then the Royal Navy for 43 years and six months. The Guinness Book of Records have just recognised me as the longest serving female in the UK military forces. Just surpassed um, um, a one officer in the army who did just over 43 years. So, you know, tip my hat to her, but it's, um, I'm just very, very proud of that achievement. The Association of Wrens, she established in 1920. Princess Anne became president of the Wrens Association in 1973 and is now the chief commandant for women in the Royal Navy. This association was of course formed to encourage comradeship amongst all who had served in the Women's Royal Naval Service during the First World War. Establishing that framework of mutual support for those returning to civilian life that continues today. Since its formation in 1920, the Wrens Association has been a crucial support for veterans. It's almost like all those years have never gone by. You met up like old pals, you know, it's really, it's really good. It's a really real good support um, network for everybody. And I love the association, you know, doing things like this. I think it's great. It just keeps you in touch with what's going on with the military. Incidentally, the Wren is different from the ordinary peacetime visitor because she doesn't ask so many fool questions. Wren's filmed in 1942 on a visit to a warship in the Middle East, but it wasn't until 1993 that the Wrens were merged with the Royal Navy and women were permitted to serve at sea frustration to some of the older veterans. It was what we knew at the time and um, I think that a lot of girls were ambitious to go to sea. It was, um, really, but because I looked after these minesweepers, occasionally they invited me out for the day with them. But I had to be in by a certain time in the evening. The new commemorative stone to mark a hundred years of the Wrens Association will now form a permanent feature of the Wrens Garden. Rosie Laden with that report. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. In a brand new, original BFBS podcast... I just remember being so angry with everybody, everyone in Iraq, like beyond angry and tears rolling down my eyes. What is it that drives people to be brave? We knew that he didn't have that long to live, so we had to continue. To commit acts of heroism, often in the face of the enemy. I guarantee that if this battle continues, not only will we die, but you guys are going to be coming with us. Hear from the men and women who've received the UK's highest military honours. They talk about what happened, what they went through at the time, and how they feel about it now. TN Meadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and at bfbs.com slash podcasts.